You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, brother. This is Standing in Two Worlds. Dr. Sam Juni from Yerushalayim. I'm also joined today, and I'm very pleasantly uh, happy about this, uh, with Rabbi Shavuot who is my colleague at the Yeshiva of Newark, and also a licensed family therapist. Uh, so, Dr. Juni, Rabbi Skaist, and to all of us, the past 30 years have seen one of the most sweeping changes in public attitudes ever. Uh, the acceptance of a majority of the population, um, and there's been professional surveys done of gay marriage and of gay lifestyle as well. Uh, the This pace of acceptance far outstrips the push for women's equality and civil rights, persons of color. Uh, it, it's really incredible. The, if the statistics that came out in the 1980s indicated there was approximately 11% acceptance of the idea of gay marriage. In 2018, that had changed in the United States to something close to 70%. Uh, sociologists from Harvard and Princeton and others were shocked by these findings about how quickly these changes have occurred. Now, we know that this shift, which started in the late 80s, uh, really uh, began and was preceded by an important shift in the world of psychology and psychiatry. In 1973, the board of uh, that publishes the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, decided to alter what had been their designation of homosexuality. They had had it as a pathological illness. In 1973, they decided that they were going to change that. And in 1974, that diagnosis was replaced with something called sexual orientation disturbance. Really, that already took the onus off of the person who, the homosexual himself, and was actually started to place it on society, which had negative feelings towards that person. And the person had started to internalize them. Uh, eventually, that diagnosis itself also uh, was jettisoned. And eventually, uh, in some of the later uh, publications of the DSM, which is published by the American uh, Psychiatric Association, they have eliminated this completely. Uh, there are people who believe that even what was happening in the psychiatric and sci the world of psychology was also preceded by uh, the gay activism that began in the late 60s and was very strong in those early 70s. Eventually, of course, uh, the Orthodox world caught up, the Orthodox Jewish world that we live in uh, seems to have caught up with this. Um, as we know, today, we live in a world of intense globalization where everything happens almost simultaneously. But I would say, and I think this is true, I think we, all the three of us that are here have been witness to this, that it, although orthodoxy is always based on a culturization of absorbing elements from the greater world, but the, and, and it's somewhat times lag behind the general trends, I think if things were really different from the time Norman Lamb wrote his article in 1974, his groundbreaking article on homosexuality, to what has occurred, I think, in 2001, when the film Trembling Before God uh, got, was, became popular, and I think it's really become an issue that has become front and center uh, since around 2000, which is how do we uh, deal with homosexuals in our community? How, what is the level of acceptance? How do we deal halachically? And I think what I want to throw out to Dr. Juni first, uh, not only commenting on, the, on this whole uvda, so to speak, because uh, you, know, you have been a witness to that, uh, Dr. J., but also about the effectiveness of conversion or reparation therapy. Uh, there have been a number of studies uh, that have uh, promoted this, 
And we know there are orthodox uh, therapists who are practicing it. Uh, it's also been demonized uh, by the, uh, the APA and other areas that it's something that cannot work and something that should not work and something that, 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 that causes suicides. Um, and, and obviously for us, especially for me, and I'm not a professional in any way, watching this as a parent and as a teacher, um, it, it clearly puts us into a, a tremendous bind about how we are supposed to proceed. So, Dr. Juni, I've given you a lot to chew on, uh, but I know that this is uh, in your wheel wheelhouse. So if you could start us off, uh, in general, your perspective and what you think specifically uh, should be done or could be done or in terms of conversion therapy. Okay, thank you. I'm glad to be here again. And uh, you've given me like a whole barrage of questions. I will try to touch on some of the salient ones and then we'll take it from there. Um, I like the remark you made that the APA felt that the um, conversion therapy cannot work and should not work. And I think that kind of grabs the issue by the horns that there's two tracks here. There's a question of efficacy and there's a question of whether we want to um, support this kind of uh, intervention in people's lives. And that's not the same question at all. Um, I'd like to separate them that way, but I just want to branch off into a total tangent first um, and, and just point out the issue of whether something is a problem and whether it is a stigma. Those necessarily don't work together. And I want to give you two little examples. Um, there's been an upheaval in the world of disability um, that basically started about 25 years ago where disabled people did not deny they were disabled. And many of them said, of course, they would rather not be, but they were objecting to the stigma that was attached to disability. So that's point A. And then within that subset, we had a very active movement of deaf people who had the ability to correct their deafness using cochlear implants, and they patently refused to do that. And furthermore, deaf people who had deaf children refused to have that kind of intervention done for their children as well, which to me is a step beyond what was going on in the general field of disability because they were saying not only that they don't like the stigma, but they don't even want to entertain the issue that people without the problem of deafness are any better off than those with. Okay? So those are two little tangential points. Let me get back to what we were talking about. Um, the problem of confluence between values and an assessment of where the thing works is something that's insidious and really distorts the entire literature. It's rare to find people these days who, who report either one way or the other way on the efficacy of any kind of intervention who don't actually have a value investment in the way their findings are turning out, which makes people think that if, in fact, someone who has a certain value system does a study and the study results do not match with the um, value they have, that those results will never see the light of day. So which puts this in a very, um, shall we say, um, biased presentation mode. Um, so specifically the question about the efficacy of um, conversion therapy, okay? It's hard to weed through the many studies to figure out what is the orientation in terms of values of the person who is presenting this study? But uh, nonetheless, I've done a lot of plowing because it's been very relevant to many patients that I've been seeing. And my impression is that conversion therapy does not work. In other words, um, and again, when I say does not work, there's a problem of criteria. Yes, sir. Go ahead. I know I, I, I went on and gave an introduction, but perhaps you could tell our audience here a little bit about what conversion therapy generally is. And, you know, we, we've, we've dismissed it, but we haven't really described what it's about. So if you could just give a, a brief sentence or two about what it is. Sure, sure, sure. So conversion therapy 
is basically a, a um, procedure, a psychological slash psychiatric procedure, which is not done with medication. It's done through interaction between the doctor or the therapist and the patient. And the purpose is to change someone's orientation from one type of sexual preference to another. And the way it's used almost exclusively is to change a person from homosexual orientation towards a heterosexual orientation. That's how it's usually used. Um, okay, that's, that's, I think, concise enough. And, and um, many, many people have been practicing conversion therapy up to a certain point. And then the tide of the um, professionals in the field turned extremely against this kind of um, um, activity. And it eventually resulted in it being uh, outlawed, essentially, in quite a few states and in some countries as well. And the rationale that they presented empirically was that it doesn't work, which then got appended with the notion that it actually is harmful to people. But then, you know, the, the underlying issue was, is it because these people are not competent? Is it because they don't have a good methodology? Or because changing somebody's orientation is inherently harmful to someone for some reason? And again, the theory is not well formulated. I've never seen studies talking about, say, converting someone who has a heterosexual um, lifestyle to a homosexual lifestyle, whether that's harmful or whether that should be outlawed. I've not seen that. But again, that would depend on what the logic is of why it is that many uh, professional and mostly professional guilds feel that this is something that doesn't work and that should not work the way you put it. Yeah, so <laughs> let, let me follow up on that a little bit. Um, you know, the, uh, the you said that conversion therapy is trying to change. And I, uh, the way I understand it is that it isn't just uh, what goes on in the therapist's office, but rather it's, it's, it's a whole lifestyle type of change. Uh, it, it involves being involved in uh, masculine activities and male bonding and other, other sorts, sorts of, of uh, experiences. It's, in fact, I think they call it uh, ch- SOCE, Sexual Orientation Change Experience. It isn't just talking over why a person has same-sex attraction, but also realizing that these can be altered by real-life uh, interactions with other men and what's considered non-erotic touching. Um, so it, it, it does seem to have a, a, a broad base. It, it's not just about uh, you know, trying to schmooze somebody and to browbeat someone and to tell somebody that there's something terrible about him. But, but I think that the reports that, that have surfaced, there was a, an article in the Jewish press uh, by a, a Chaim Levin who said that he was part of this and he, uh, of these experiences, and he came home and he, he was always contemplating suicide because how much he hated himself afterwards. So, you know, I, I think it, it is, it's important to, to realize that there that a lot of the people that are that are have agreed to become part of conversion therapy are people that wanted it, uh, and, and and I think that that's probably a factor as well. The fact that this is something that they wanted to happen to themselves. I'm not talking about forcing it on other people, but people who are frustrated with their situation. Uh, would you say also, Doctor Juni? I know that. You are someone who understands the ideas of Dr. Freud. Uh, what was Dr. Freud's um, attitude in general about what we should do about the fact that there are homosexuals? Is there something wrong with that? Is there something that we should try to alter? Is, what, should our, what should our reaction be uh, in, in terms of the medical, the medical professional field? So you, you've just bitten into a real huge apple here when you start speaking about classic psychoanalysis of Freudian theory. So again, let me give a brief, brief introduction to that. In terms of um, Freud's overall orientation, the idea of exactly what kind of expression sexuality takes 
is something that's quite variable and versatile. I mean, he, he liked to refer to sexuality as being polymorphously perverse, which means that essentially sexuality as such, the way, it's, the way people experience it, is not attached to any particular goal or object, so to speak. And that everybody has within himself or herself any kind of a sexual expression that you can think of in terms of the template, and then that it's up to the person's experience in this world as they develop to uh, come up with a certain kind of style that suits them best. But basically, um, I would say if you want to limit ourselves just in terms of the heterosexual, homosexual options, um, he basically would see everybody as bisexual, so to speak, on a continuum from being totally heterosexual to being totally homosexual, and then experience basically shifts the needle along that continuum. So that essentially, unless somebody is totally at the other end, which he posits is not, not um, feasible, everybody has elements that can be conf- um, um, identified as homosexual tendencies. Everybody has elements that can be identified as heterosexual tendencies. And the um, conversion therapists latch onto that kind of model to say, okay, so we're not really changing somebody's orientation. We're just shifting them to either be able to appreciate perhaps a bisexual kind of life or to appreciate one mode of expression perhaps more than the other. So that softens the dichotomy of saying we're changing somebody from X to Y. We're basically just changing the um, balance between X and Y, which each person has anyway. So the, the implication of that is that nobody is really it one way or the other. People are somewhere along the continuum. The other important thing to understand about Freud is that he was an evolutionary psychiatrist, which means he felt that there is a purpose to the sexuality that we have, have programmed in. And he felt that what he called the ideal person is one who expresses his sexuality primarily in a heterosexual manner. He doesn't say exclusively. He doesn't see um, uh, enjoying um, sexuality other than the prototypical engagement with an other person of the other gender is faulty or wrong or perverse. He only sees it as perverse if they go totally the other way and can't appreciate what he calls ideal sexuality. So those are the two major tenets of psychoanalytic theory when it comes to this kind of a, um, um, input. Okay, so I hope I've yeah. touched well, on so that. It sounds like, and I want to get Rabbi Skase involved here now, but it sounds like Freud can actually be almost like, uh, can be quoted uh, for both. <laughs> it's almost like that um, the uh, the the conversion therapist, as you say, can quote Freud, but also uh, the people who who want to outlaw it, or people who are who have in the in the psychological community who have been pushing uh, for uh, embracing the homosexual lifestyle as something that is normal and should not even be looked at askance. They can also point to Freud as uh, as sort of like a, a Haskama, even though you're saying at the very end that you believe that Freud would probably want to, based on his sense of biology, would say, well, clearly the way God created us or whoever created us, the way we are supposed to, the way we are formed, are formed in a way that are meant to have heterosexual relationships that can produce children. So it would seem like if, if, if Freud would be alive today and would see what was going on, he might not be so happy with the complete acceptance of gay marriage and uh, the gay lifestyle as something that is that it goes hand in hand with, with 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 everything else that's going on in the world. Would would you say that's true? I would say that's true, and I would also say it doesn't really matter <laughs> what he would think. He- Alive today, you know, that's okay. Right. Okay, but I have to say, a lot of the opposition, just to to be fair, a lot of the opposition to conversion therapy comes from its not injudicious use. The fact that it may be used in a coercive manner, the fact that people may latch onto it as a kind of you know saving way of to get out of problems when there really isn't. So, in other words there would probably have been much less flack against conversion therapy if people felt that it was being done uh, 
in with full agreement of the patient and that it was done in the proper because a lot of the objections are just efficacy and the fact that there are negative um, um, effects of the intervention, which I don't doubt because almost any psychiatric or psychological intervention, if it's done in some inappropriate way, can result in much harm. So in fairness, these people are not off the wall. I only think that they, um, there's something wrong when they are driven not so much by the care of the patient or the efficacy, but by an overall value system, which, as you said, this, this should not work. You know, we, we call this program Standing in Two Worlds. I know, Rabbi case. I know that you have uh, been so many years as an educator and dealt with uh, many students, and I, I'm sure this was something that uh, did come up uh, in, in, in your counseling and as a Rebbe, and now that you are uh, a therapist and dealing with this. So maybe maybe you could uh, ring in here on what you think is an approach, uh, what you believe should be the approach, and, and maybe you want to uh, ask Dr. Juni uh, in terms of things that you are thinking about uh, dealing with these issues today. So I appreciate uh, the chance to be on your uh, podcast, Robert Kivalevich, and uh, Dr. Juni, I very much appreciate the way you separated uh, the issue into uh, e- efficacy versus values. Um, and I want to just comment and maybe ask if you agree to this. Uh, I, I had an argument recently with a close family member about, um, about the way homosexuality is being treated in the world. And uh, the argument was not about whether it's right or wrong or whether it's uh, or, or about conversion therapy specifically, but it was more about, you know, how the, how how we got to where we are, and and I think that uh, people, particularly in the front community, um, aren't don't always appreciate the fact that we got to where we are because of our uh, lack of sensitivity to people who are struggling with a very real issue. Uh, in a world that that not only marginalized them but really demonized them, and uh, we live in a democratic society, and when you demonize a particular section of uh, uh, of, of the population, they're going to pick up banners and picket and and make protests, and they're going to advocate for themselves. And then when the result is not exactly what you what you like, uh, you can't then go and 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 be that angry at them. Because at least from my perspective. Uh, you know, and 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 this this came to me. This idea and the way that I look at it came to me after hearing many, many uh, students and various people that I've met and talked to over the years who have described to me in great detail the suffering that they endured uh, growing up in the from world in the yeshiva system, being made fun of uh, uh, for you know any type of um, even intimation, even when they were too young to really appreciate what what their sexual orientation was, but because of uh, either the, w- the way they were or the way they acted, um, being picked on and, and uh, bullied and uh, really subject to, 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 to terrible yisurim growing up. So, uh, you know, I, I, and, and we know that this is the case in the world. And I think that the, the APA and other uh, psychiatric and, and, and uh, psychological or, um, organizations and, 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 and guilds, or however you would characterize them, uh, were very much a part of that problem. And perhaps the rebound here uh, is that, um, that uh, beca- because of that, so people's values have shifted very much in the opposite direction. And maybe we're in the middle of a corrective uh, uh, Rambam approach to the golden mean, where, where after a number of years, Perhaps, I don't know, it's hard to see it, but maybe there could be uh, a rebound to, towards the center where people realize that there, there may be, uh, it may be more important to look at the efficacy of this rather than the, uh, the values behind it. I'm, I'm curious whether you agree, disagree, what you, what you have to say about that. No, I, I do agree. I, I am not necessarily agreeing with your corrective theory in terms of the way this is evolving, but I want to crank up something that you said earlier that really strikes a chord, and you were talking about the subjective feeling of ridicule and suffering that people have felt, especially children have felt, by um, the attitudes or the stances of their peers, and I think that um, what's equally harmful 
is the suffering they felt by the stance and attitudes of their parents and of their teachers and mentors. And um, I, I would just want to like crank that up a bit by saying that, first of all, um, I talked before about a continuum of uh, the um, sexual um, um, sexual proclivities or sexual attractions. I have to say that there is no question that in terms of practical assignments or practical decisions, some people seem to be very much fixed in one mode or the other. In other words, there are some people where it's very hard to find within them elements of homosexual attraction. And you say, you know, they're essentially heterosexual for all intents and purposes. Don't waste your time even trying to get this person to realize that they do appreciate being close to somebody of the same gender on a, um, shall we say, erotic level. And I would say very much so for the homosexual um, um homosexually identified youngsters that some are really there and many of them are there from a very early age. It's not really much debatable. They're just there. And I think the idea of uh, trying to change them is going to be much more difficult than people who basically feel that they're bi, but they have a preference. Um, The reason why there has been a uh, kind of almost reflexive Persecution, I can say emotional persecution of children or youngsters who identify homosexual comes from a um, primitive theory of psychology that many educators and parents, including uh, religious educators, have that many things that you do, it's because you're doing it willfully and you shouldn't do that. It's like if you act out in class, so why are you doing that? Let's punish you and let's knock it out of you. There is a reason why kids act out. Everybody throws spitballs for a reason. Everybody cuts people for a reason. And the same notion um, of, uh, let's say, you have, uh, why are you so attracted to boys? Why aren't you like everybody else? Why don't you? And those questions, why don't you? It's not rhetorical. It's, the point is, it's like, why did you choose to go uh, to this school rather than that school? Why do you like this kind of ice cream? And the point is, it's up to you. Why are you doing this? And that's what's most harmful to people who feel they can't, like you talk to, let's say, the lay person. Somebody's depressed. What's with you? Why don't you just take a shave and go to work? And why do you have to cry? I mean, you tell somebody, why do you have to cry? That's like telling somebody why you have to blink. You don't do that. But the attitude basically makes people feel that they're evil, that they're willfully doing something that they are maybe struggling about or maybe feel I have no option about that. Like, why do you breathe? Don't talk to me about that. But if you found an alien who kept criticizing me for breathing or for eating or for going to the bathroom, I would, and I would internalize that because these are the authorities. This is my father, my mother, my grandfather, my rabbi, my teacher. I would internalize it and feel horrible. So that's important. Yes, that stigma is terrible. So I agree with everything you said. I am not enough of a a uh, historian who knows the future to know whether this is a corrective trend of any sort, or if I even want to sanction that as corrective. Because as far as as I see it, the claims of the guilds against um, um, conversion therapy has a lot of validity to it from the perspective of the feelings of the victims. And often people who are not straight heterosexual are victimized. So I, my heart goes out to them. I can't quite just distance myself enough and say, okay, let me look at this theoretically. It's correct if it's a pendulum swinging back and forth. I am not that uh, prescient. If I could just uh, comment a little bit here to what Rabbi Skay's point and, and to your reaction and to your, to your answer to that. Um, Rabbi Skay's is saying that one of the reasons why all our attempts to to suggest other alternatives are being shouted down is because we're, we're paying, paying the price for our condemnation. Or, or like that, like that, because we have it coming. We've got it coming, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and that might be true. And, and I think in, in our conversations that we've had before, Dr. Juni, you've mentioned the liberal bias has, hasn't allowed many in the, uh, the the psychiatric and psychological field to even contemplate or hear any other alternative. People have been shouted down. And even if you would say that these studies could even be more professionally done, there definitely is a resistance 
to accepting anything else right now. Even if, even if, if we could we prove, could prove it, it and show it empirically, empirically uh, there, there is, is a, 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 an, ad, an attitudinal change, change that has occurred that, has occurred, that I'm, not I'm not sure if we can, if we can uproot, uproot anymore. anymore. Look at the Look way, at the way legislation, legislation is being, is being uh, handled, handled in England, England and other, other places, places where schools have to, even the most religious schools, have to promote fluid sexual identity and acceptance. Uh, and I, I think this is what I want to put out on the, on, on the table here, is what can we do? Clearly, screaming about conversion therapy isn't helping because the, the backlash uh, had occurred. And um, as, as we, we know, know, all of us here as Orthodox Jews, and we, we know that, that most of our listeners are, are, are in, in that, that area, area. Uh, what is, where, where do we, we go, go from here? here? One of the things that I that, that I, I want you to, to both of you to, to discuss, and I'll, I'll start, start with you, Dr. Judy, is, is something that, that I've heard about, about I think from you, about gay men marrying gay women. Can you talk about that as 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 as, 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 a, as, a, as a as a new, new option? option? Okay, so these are two points I'd like to react to, to, to both. The the first question, if I can rephrase it, is basically a question is do the facts even matter here? Okay, because at some point when we get to, to the uh, um, level where an argument is about values, whether this should be done or should not be done, the facts are almost irrelevant. And I know in various cases, especially, I mean, I wear a hat dealing with Arab-Israeli relationships as well at the practical level. And basically I find that often Nobody cares about who was here first, who was here second, who was in charge. Is it a democracy? Is it not a democracy? Because it's way beyond that. So that's the first question. And um, just in that context, the question is, can we separate? Is, is there still an opportunity, at least in this current zeitgeist, to separate the value conflict that's going on perhaps between traditional religious um, conservative people and people who are more liberal and more concerned about the rights of others. Can we separate that from the facts? And I think you can definitely separate it by doing very decent studies. One can do a decent double-blind study to investigate whether one's sexual orientation can be shifted. That can be done. The question is, will it make a difference? I would say, based on the current political trend, no, it will not make a difference. Because the idea is not whether it can be done. It's, as you said, there was a very, like, prescient point they made in the beginning. Should it happen? They felt it can't because it doesn't work. And besides, it shouldn't happen. That, of course, is suspect. Whenever you have two very basic reasons for something not to work, I, I doubt the pure legitimacy of either. Okay, but that's skepticism. We don't have to go there. In terms of the other idea that you mentioned, which is within the fold of people who do believe that um, people who are homosexual should have the ability, and I would add the right to be members of their particular religious and value um, system, even though they don't quite comply with it, but they want to be part of it. How can we fit that in? So I think that's a very novel approach, which is very much debatable. And of course, you can tear it down if you have strong values against it. And that's a, a rabbi who years ago, it's a rabbi, Rosh Hashiva, who is a uh, really prominent uh, um, scholar. I mean, I've enjoyed his scholarly works long before I realized that this, he was into this program and actually tried to get him to be involved in the courses we were teaching in Tel Aviv. And he declined, which is probably wise because Tel Aviv is not the most um, um, open society to ideas that don't fit into the legend there. But basically what he has done is there are many people, I was involved by way with three Orthodox gay major organizations in Israel for years. These are actually with shuls, and these are people who went to yeshiva who identify with the values, but yet maintain a uh, homosexual lifestyle in terms of how they come up with it. Everybody has their own story, but they definitely identify and want to be part of the firm community. And this rabbi came up with a program of coming up with shiduchim, where he comes up with the way of actually doing the standard shidduch traditional work that's done, finding people who are compatible in terms of interests, values, and personality, setting them up and saying, okay, you sound like a great couple to live together, 
to have children, to be part of the community with the understanding that the sexual habits and proclivities you have is your business and nobody else. So basically, these people like each other. I can't use the term love because that's something that's loaded with dynamite. But these people get along. They have a nice family. They are concerned for each other. When one of them is in the hospital, the other one will be there and be talking to the doctors and very much concerned. The children are involved and whatever. Do the children know about the sexual proclivities? I have no reason to know. I, I don't know that and I don't ask that. But it is essentially, for all intents and purposes, a family unit and they fit into society. Um, I assume, unless people start snooping too much, but they generally fit in. Um, people don't ask too many questions and it kind of works for them. There are people on the extreme liberal side that would call this a travesty, a distortion. Look what you're doing to these people. If you speak to them, they don't feel they're being victimized at all. As far as, far as they know it, they're having the best of both worlds. I don't necessarily agree that it's the best of either world, but they don't feel that this is being forced on them in another way. This is what they want. They have the option to pull out. They definitely will not have the official spouse having any objection to them pulling out. So this is kind of an interesting compromise, but again, it runs against the zeitgeist. This is not something that anybody who does not agree with trying to um, respect, say, religious or value convictions in addition to having sexuality which fits totally with your preference. This is not something that they're even willing to look at. Okay? So, again, it's possible to come up with ways to compromise and have things work out, but again, you're running upstream against the political zeitgeist now, which some people have actually labeled as totalitarianism by the liberal point of view of freedom to say, no, you have no right to infringe on your own freedoms, even if you want to. <laughs> well, but we, we know, uh, Dr. Juni, and, and, uh, that, that the Frumvelt wants to continue, and, and, and there is a beauty, as you say, of living that Frum lifestyle and, 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 and producing children and, and being and feeling part of the community. I, I think I just want to spell out the obvious is that they will, of course, produce children. They will, of course, go through the, the, the mechanical motions of living together and producing children, but yet their emotional, um, erotic aspects will be fulfilled in other ways. And um, here and I think I just, you have... Uh, I just to add, if you want to go along with your traditional psychomolytic theory, there will actually be some um, positive value even to that kind of sexuality, even though it is not at all the dominant form of the person. If you want to go along with that, and I'm saying if, it's a big if, but if you do, you can have that Benny as well. Well, again, the, the, the point is producing the children is, 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 is mechanics, and eroticism is fantasy for them. So basically they have that, that thing going for them. But I think it also brings up some of these other points that the Yeshiva Chovave and others have talked about, which is halachic ways that gay couples can be part of the community, other than what I love with this Rosh Hashiva Zetzah, but they've been coming up with, with, with ideas of unions uh, where we want to embrace and, and, and take them and, 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 and show them, of course, our love, which I think everybody says. Even the, the frumest uh, people today are saying we need to show love and, and compassion. But, 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 but I would ask, and again, Rabbi Skase, I know uh, I, I want to just get you here on this in terms of some of these halachic aces that uh, are, 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 are being suggested now in order that to, to, that there should not be this sort of, uh, sort of civil war going on. Do you have any, uh, uh, do you have some comment on that? I, I can tell you that um, I, I would think that I'm not alone in being very torn on this issue. Um, on one hand, uh, I have uh, tremendous uh, empathy for people who are struggling with this, and uh, I understand how growing up in today's world, and uh, as as uh, uh, Dr. Juni has as clearly stated, what, what you know, what the political zeitgeist is, um, why they would want uh, equality, why they would want to be respected for who they are, why they would want the opportunity to. 
uh, do what uh, the, the rest of the world is, seems to be doing. Um, on the other hand, I also have a tremendous respect and uh, understanding of the of the um, of the of the Masara, the way we have it, and the, the 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 you know it's hard to imagine a time when in the certainly in the Haredi community it's really hard to imagine a time when uh, when when people can be can openly claim you know openly introduce a uh, a same sex partner as a uh, as a spouse right it, it, it's 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 impossible to imagine. Um, so I imagine that somebody who, who is who is struggling with that, it, you know, has uh, feels that they don't have any any possibility of self-expression because in the world it seems to be it's it's now more accepted and uh, in the U.S. it's it's sanctioned as marriage and so it's a real struggle for them. So I, my heart goes out to them, but I don't I can't say that I agree with uh, with uh, not, it's not even a question of whether I agree or not. It's a question of practicality. Lamaisa, is there? And you know, let's talk realistic. Is it is it realistic that any time, any time in the future, it's a, some a same-sex couple is going to walk into some uh, Hasidish enclave in in, in Me'asharim and and people are going to welcome them as uh, as equals? It's 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 just not it's not it's not realistic at all. So. I understand why there's advocacy in that direction. I'm compassionate about it. I, I'm empathetic about it, but I don't believe that it uh, that it will ever work. And uh, therefore, I don't I don't think that it's a path that uh, you know. Again, as much as I as I'm sympathetic to it, I, I don't believe it's a path that will actually come come into fruition. Well, it's, it's I think that you know one thing. I think I think we can all agree on. Uh, the halachic, as you say, the halachic eitzes are somewhat specious. I, I love this eitzah from this uh, anonymous Rosh Hashiv. I think it's great. Uh, it's it's a really great einfall. I, I don't. I'm not. It, it does also skirt uh, halacha in a little way. But I think that one thing that that I think we can all agree on is that this change that we've all been witness to is going to have some positivity in that when a, this arises in a from family. They aren't going to do what you were talking about, Doctor Juni, or what you were talking about, Rabbi Skeist. Uh, the condemnation is not going to rise. Even I would say in a Chassidish family in Meisharim, I think that the acculturization of what we've accepted from the greater society means that when that arises, oh, the same way going off the derech doesn't have the same implications that it used to. I think the discovery that your child is gay or your child has a proclivity towards same-sex uh, attraction, I think is going to cause that at, at, at ground zero, which means by the family, they aren't going, we're going to have a lot less of these condemnations and, and horrible stories of, of blaming and shaming. And I think that that is a positive thing and maybe could lead to a, a way where that member of our society, that, that person can could make a better choice and won't see in front of him a, a stark cho- choice between am I part of this firm world or am I just rejecting it and going into some some other place. I, I think we could probably end here with something that, um, uh, which, I don't know, I'll, I'll give you guys the last word, but I, I'll suggest it, and it's something that I've said to my students who have come to me with this issue, is that it's a terrible, terrible Nisoyon, and I, my heart goes out to you, but there are a lot of other nisyonos that we live with as being Orthodox Jews. And, um, and maybe there's, this message sounds a little bit intolerant, but yeah, does that mean I'll never have a partner that I really find erotic fulfillment with? A lot of the Tanoyim and Amaroyim never had that either. And a lot of people throughout the Deiris, especially in, 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 in the Europe, that were our grandparents and great-grandparents, the Shaduchim were made, and I am sure that they had very little love in a lot of these marriages, that a lot of these marriages were not built on love at all. And, and I can tell you from people that I know and even from some personal experiences with, with relatives and others, it happens. And I think that, that, that it, it, can, do you think that we could ever get that message across? Yes, you are suffering. Yes, you're Nisoyon, and I, I, I can't even understand it. But on the other hand, there's Nisoyonis everyone has. And those Nisyonos need to be overcome and dealt with, and God is, is, is compassionate. 
and he'll understand. So I'm going to get, I'm going to have, uh, I'll ask you first and we'll have Dr. Judy on the last word. What would you say to this, uh, Rabbi Skaist? Well, I think Dr. Judy has been, uh, been wanting to, wanting to chime in. Uh, so I, I can go, go ahead. All right. So I, listen, I, I would say, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you. Um, I, I don't know how effective it is to tell somebody who's struggling with something that may feel to them to be the, the biggest struggle of their life that, um, you know, that other people struggle too and other people have struggled in this area in the past. I, 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 I think that that's uh, – what, what can I say? When, when somebody – when I have an issue, if, if I went to speak to somebody and they, and they told me that, I'm not sure I would be very uh, satisfied with that answer. Um, to put it mildly, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I could buy into that. Um, I think that we live in a world where uh, you turn on any any TV show and love uh, uh, seems to to magically happen within the space of three minutes, and we all know how unhealthy it is that it's portrayed that way. But Lamaisa, that's the world that we live in, and our our. Um, our children are growing up in that world, and even the children of the most in the, in the houses where they're the most careful about filters on their internet and not having a television and so on. Uh, anyone who in today's world thinks that their children are not growing up with uh, being influenced by these uh, by these values is kidding themselves. So to then tell somebody who grows up in such a world where they believe that they deserve the uh, the uh, romantic um, love that is portrayed in, in, in the media and t- tell them that, you know, they have to give up on that. I don't know. That's a very, very difficult uh, sell in my book. Dr. Judy. <laughs> okay. So I have two points, Rabbi Skaist. You took one, the main one right out of my mouth. And that's basically that the one thing that does not help people who complain about something uh, bitterly is to say, oh yeah, I have it too, or I've seen it before. You're not the only one. It doesn't hurt any less to say, you know, somebody else has had it happen back to me before. It's not any better. But I just wanted to make another point, which is really, there was a question directed to the rabbi, and I want to respond to it from my own experience. You asked about halachic ways to deal with the um, desires and needs of people, which can kind of help them skirt some major pitfalls. And um, I can tell you, I've had that kind of experience often with the rabbis, because I see patients, often, uh, so, often some of them are very orthodox, and there are certain issues where I felt that there has to be some compromise. I mean, just as a mild one, you know, somebody who is in the middle of a shiver and they're extremely depressed and I feel they need to get out of the house, okay? And I've had conversations with the rabbis and they've been quite easy to give a dispensation saying, if the doctor says so, you got a doctor's note, go ahead, go, go to a restaurant, go meet somebody, it's fine. And yet, when I've tried to do the same kind of thing with people who have sexual issues, to, and not, not necessarily or not primarily homosexuals, just sexual issues, to try to come up with something which, based on my meager knowledge of halacha, is in the ballpark, and I've actually seen Chubas who have done it, the rabbis, like often, some rabbis often just refuse to look at it, and it's the same kind of um, attitude symmetrically to what I find from the liberal world, like saying, I don't even want to talk about this. This is something, as you said before, Rabbi Kibbalevitz, this is something that should not be considered. And my impression is that they know that there is a halachic solution, at least a partial solution, which will make these people feel much less guilty and feel much less horrible and definitely not be suicidal, and yet they refuse to entertain it because this is just totally out of the ballpark. So that kind of, I would say, extreme um, bias and inability really to empathize with what's going on exists on both sides of the fence. And I've, I've gotten hit on the head with it repeatedly sometimes, saying, I don't know, and I've told them, I don't know how to do this, but maybe speak to another rabbi. Maybe that's the option. And again, I'm sorry, I've on your toes, everybody's case. No, not at all. I happen to agree with you completely. I think that, uh, I mean, I think this is part of a much bigger issue, and that is that uh, Rabbanim and Mechanchim are uh, playing catch-up to the the values that are going on in the world, and uh, we still have a system where a discussion of sex is taboo. Uh, Our children are growing up without the language to properly discuss it. Uh, many of many of the children in the Haredi community grow up without any discussion of it whatsoever, and learn uh, from the street and from uh, sources that 
that we ourselves would consider terrible, but because we're, we, we, we bury our heads in the sand. I have to say, many of my Talmidim in the yeshiva will uh, tell me that, uh, that, that uh, I mean, I, every year I give a series of Purim on sexuality. I bring the issues up. I want them to know that they can talk to me about it. I think it's important that we have uh, open discussions about it. And, and in today's world, we cannot say, no, this is only something that can be discussed behind closed doors. Our, our children need to be given language to discuss this and the, and the, and the permission to discuss it. Uh, and my, all my tell me, virtually all of them tell me that it's the first time that they've ever heard a shear where these things were dealt with openly and honestly and where they felt that they could actually um, participate and ask questions without any type of uh, stigma attached to their questions. So um, I think that, this, you know, what you're describing is uh, the product of a system that is is really trying, you know, I understand why, trying to hold on to to our uh, Masara, but at the same time, not rolling with the times in the way that we need to. Well, I think that we've uh, we've definitely uh, done more than scratch the surface here, and I think we've discovered uh, uh, scabs that have already started to grow. On a, a, a system. Um, I wasn't, of course, again, I'm not trying to defend my position, but I wasn't obviously talking about browbeating someone and making someone feel, hey, you know, tough it up. What I was saying is I think that um, that we should recognize the, 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 great, the great pain and, and hurt and realize, I think also, though, at the same time, that not everybody gets everything that they want in life and why people have been, uh, as you say, Given this romantic proclivity, it is something that you might they might be struggling with their whole life. I think again, it's the the unknowable self, the self that's constantly changing that that we all struggle with. And and I think it is important to have a nuanced view. Uh, it, maybe Freud can help us in this way, and we can take that that aspect of it of realizing that nothing is really so simple and 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 and, and obvious. You know, the Rabbani Shalom obviously wants uh, the struggle of, of actualization and being a human being is, is one of the hardest things. I'll just end with, with this idea. Um, the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik, said in 1963 when he was trying to explain the Machlekes, the Rambam and the Ramban, whether tefillah is from the Torah or not. The Ramban says that tefillah, the Ace Tzora, is probably Minat Torah when you have an Ace Tzora. When you have an Eitzora, then you appeal to God because God can. You realize that God provides the answers. So Rav Salvechik said, "I'm not sure if he meant it uh, completely in the Rambam's mindset, but it is such a beautiful idea." The Rambam agrees, but every day is an Eitzora. Every day, what a person goes through is 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 is, is, is a crisis. So it isn't just <laughs> the the, Ram, the Rambam agrees. That's why you have to do it every day because every day there are crises that that arise within you to try to find, to discover what it is that, how you can live and how you can live properly uh, within yourself. So that's it, my friends, uh, for, for this week, a little extra long edition of Standing in Two Worlds. I want to thank uh, Rabbi Judy again, <laughs> Rabbi Judy, I'm sorry, Dr. Judy and Rabbi Skase. I'm getting my Shmilos and Sams mixed up here. My Shmilos, Sams and Shmilos mixed up. Mirza uh, Shem will be back hopefully uh, next week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.